Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So um, I, I can laugh when things go wrong because I love... Um, I love comedy. I love farts. In fact, some of you know that uh, I really enjoy uh, terrible junk food teen movies. You know, Empire Records, Mean Girls, Clueless, like they're just, you know, the, the, the bad teen movies. And one of the things that I love about those movies is their predictability. And one of the tropes that they sort of always go along with, one of the tropes uh, that they follow is the same pattern. They all follow the same pattern that they all kind of start at the beginning of the school year, and then they have the Halloween scene, and then there's the Christmas stuff that happens, and then probably Valentine's Day, and then they all conclude with graduation or the big dance at the end of the year, whatever it is. They sort of follow this holiday pattern. What's interesting is the Gospel of John actually does the same thing. The Gospel of John is structured around the holidays of the Jewish people. And so things like Passover, Tabernacle, and the, the uh, Hanukkah uh, happens in a few weeks or in a few uh, chapters in the Gospel of John. And so again and again and again, these holidays serve as the backdrop of the stories. And we miss uh, a good bit uh, of what's going on in these stories because we're not first century Jews. We don't always know what's going on in these festivals. And so today we're going to be looking at John chapter 7. And as we look at John chapter 7, we're looking at something that happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. So before we get sort of into the text, I want to just talk about why that matters to this text. What was going on here? Every year the Jews had three high holy days, three days or three festivals a year where they would all go to Jerusalem, where everybody would gather in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate these holidays together. This was one of those, and this was actually the big one. It was a week-long party where everybody from all over Israel, and really even the Jews who were from around the world, would come back to Jerusalem for this week, and they would all live in tents. They would set up tents all around the outside of the city, and for a week they would live in tents, and they would celebrate this beautiful feast. In the Old Testament law, uh, when they were providing for this, they actually said that the people should set aside 10% of everything that they earned, of all of their harvest for the entire year and bring it to Jerusalem with them to have a feast. So you think about that. 10% of all of the cows that you raised were meant to be turned into steaks for a party for one week. 10% of all of the wine that your vineyard produced this year was meant to be brought to this huge party. Now imagine all the people from across the country are bringing all of this food, all of this wine, all of this all together, living in tents. It is a huge festival. It's a huge party. But it wasn't just a party. It was a reminder that the people of Israel had wandered for 40 years that they had lived in tents as they marched towards the promised land. It was a reminder that even when they were there, living in tents, that God provided for them, that he gave them manna, he gave them bread to eat, 
And in a couple points where they weren't near any water, God made water to come out of a rock to provide for his people. God was providing for his people even when they were living in tents. And so this huge festival, not only at nighttime, had these parties where everybody was having all of this this steak and lamb chops and wine from their vineyards and grain and breads, but it was also a time where they would remember that God, during this wilderness wandering, gave them the law. That God, during this wilderness wandering, provided them with water. And so all throughout the week, they would attend services at the temple where the law was read and taught to them. And then the, the week culminated with this giant ceremony where they would take water from throughout the city and they would pour it all over the altar, all throughout the temple, reminding them of God's provision. But the meaning of this festival, the reason they did this every year, was to remind the people of Israel that even though they lived in houses now, even though they were settled in the land now, they were still pilgrims. They were still wanderers. And that big idea about being sojourners, pilgrims, wanderers, is something that it's significant for us to remember. We need to be reminded that this world that these jobs, that these homes are not our ultimate goal. That there is something yet to come. That there is something that we have not experienced yet. We are pilgrims, sojourners, and wanderers on our way to a promised land. And this affects so many things we see in our lives. This affects the, the way that we see injustice in the world around us. This affects that we, the way that we feel pain, hurt, and heartache in our lives. This affects the way that we are tempted to sin in ways that we don't even choose sometimes. This affects everything, but those are not the last words. Because we are going to a promised land where there is no injustice. We're going to a place where there is no pain, where every tear will be wiped away, where sin and sinfulness will be swept up in the victory and redemption of Jesus. But we get hung up on this life. We get caught up in this world. And we try to make this world our home. We try to make this world our ultimate what happens is that begins to affect the way that we see everything around us. Jesus is going to use the word judgment in this passage to describe the way that we understand everything around us. We make this world our home, and we make this world our basis for judging what is real and what is not. But church, we need a different perspective. We need a different authority on what is true truth, on what is really And in this passage, Jesus shows us just that. So if you would, I'm going to read all of John chapter 7, except for the last verses, 1 through 52. It's a big passage. It's a long passage, and that's okay. At City Church, we often stand. And I'd encourage you, if you're in your homes, to stand up. Or if that feels too strange for you, maybe just sit up a little straighter. Maybe just sit up a little taller. Make your body reflect what you want your heart to do in this moment, which is pay good attention to what God is doing. And so, 
Let's hear God's word from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret. He seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I, am, where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, but because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't that scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? There was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago, and intended for us. This story is the story of Jesus at one festival. And there's a lot of moving parts to it. But it begins with Jesus in Galilee. And Jesus' brothers encouraging Jesus to go to the feast in Jerusalem. And there's there's a little bit of weirdness going on there about Jesus saying, I'm not going to go to the feast, and then he does go to the feast. Uh, And, you know, people have asked, well, does that mean that Jesus lied? Did that mean that Jesus didn't tell the truth? Ah, see, the, the Bible's not real. Jesus said he was going to go. He wasn't going to go, and then he, did, then he did go. See, all of this is junk. Well, first of all, Jesus really, if you look at it, says he's not going yet, that it's not his time to go to the feast yet, and then he privately goes. And so we can say that, but when we do that, we sort of deflect over something else that's happening. When we sort of focus in on did Jesus lie, did Jesus not lie, we miss what John is actually trying to show us, which is what his brothers were saying to him. Jesus' brothers are saying, look, if you want to get famous, if you want to capture everybody's attention, if you want to get your hashtag and your brand really out there, Jesus, you need to go to the feast and like show out. You need to show everybody who you are and everybody's going to be at the feast. This is the spot that you have to go. They wanted Jesus to be famous. And the reason they wanted Jesus to be famous is because they didn't understand at all what Jesus was trying to do. See, they weren't cynical. They weren't antagonistic towards Jesus. They just didn't understand what he came to do. Jesus didn't come to this earth to become famous. Jesus didn't come to Galilee and Jerusalem to make a big deal of himself. What has Jesus said again and again in John, and again and again even in this passage? Who does he come to glorify? Himself? No. His Father. Whose authority does he come on? His own? No. His Father. Jesus came to this world to glorify his Father by redeeming his people. That's what Jesus is all about. Jesus is not all about clever branding. 
Jesus is not all about following all the right hashtags. Jesus is not all about making sure all of the right people follow him. Jesus is not about celebrity culture. And God's word. Because here's the thing. What Jesus was doing then, his counterculture, was against the grain of what everyone else what Jesus is doing now is counterculture. It is against the grain of what most people believe. Now that's hard for us to accept because we want our life to be easy. We want Jesus to be famous and all the cool people in town to come to our church and it's going to be great. But Jesus is doing something different. What Jesus is doing is submitting to the authority of his father. You see, we in the church, especially the church in America, especially the white church in America, has had it really good for the past 400 or so years. Our opinions have been pretty popular by and large, pretty accepted. But that hasn't always been the case. And that won't always. And what are we going to do when Christianity, when our belief in the Bible's ethics, when our belief in the Bible's authority gets us canceled? What are we going to do when our belief in what it says puts our jobs at risk? You see, we need to have a right understanding. We need to have a right view of this world. The humility that comes with submitting to God submitting to God's word in order to see that, yes, we may lose things. There's a, in one of the old hymns that I love, it says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. It comes from A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. And he understood that Christianity, submitting to what God says, is going to cost us something. And this is adjustment that we're going to have to become accustomed because this is not that because Christianity is counter culture. But Jesus does end up going up to the feast. And he sort of lays low for the first half. But as this feast goes on and they're reading more and more portions of the law and teaching on it, Jesus stands up at the temple and begins to teach. He begins to teach about the law. And the people are amazed. They say, How how does this man teach like this? Whose student is he? Where did he come from? You see, the Jews were expecting that, oh, you, you came from the school of Hillel. Oh, he's a great teacher, and you're one of his students. Or, oh, you came from the school of Gamaliel. Oh, that's a good school. That's great. They're, what they're really asking Jesus is, what seminary did you go to, Jesus? Where did you get your undergraduate degree? What authority do you do this by? Whose teaching are you doing? They asked Jesus, where are you getting this teaching? And Jesus Jesus' answer is genuinely funny. And I know it gets lost because we sort of, you know, it's, it's the language of the Bible sometimes still did, even in a modern translation, it feels a little bit like the King James, like thee and thou. But they ask him, Jesus, what seminary did you go to? And Jesus says, heaven. Heaven. Who, who was your teacher? God. Right? Who, how do you know so much about Moses? Because I told him. 
Jesus is kind of, kind of cagey in, in, in a funny way when he responds that his teaching came from heaven. And then Jesus, though, goes from kind of that cheeky remark to something pretty cutting. He says, look, we're all standing around here. We're all listening to the reading of the law and this festival of booths. And you guys are celebrating the law of Moses and you don't even keep it. That's why you're trying to kill me. And what do the people do? Do the people go, wow, Jesus, you're right. We are not keeping the law. That's No, they say, wait a minute, who's trying to kill you? You must be possessed by a demon. They immediately move on from the they don't keep the law thing and, and go, well, what, what about this other thing that you said, Jesus? Just like us. How often when somebody points out our sin or when we read something in the Bible that convicts us, when we read something in the Bible that contradicts the way we live, how often do we go, well, what about that person? At least I don't do those sins. Well, yeah, I mean, that might be the case, but no, no, I mean, everybody sins, right? We do the same what aboutism that the people did. We don't like to be convicted of our sin. We want to stay comfortable in what we do, comfortable in what we believe. But Jesus tells these people, look, you think that the Bible is important? And yet you don't do it. Church, how often do we give all sorts of lip service to the Bible being important, to the Bible being the word of God, to the Bible being our authority in life, and then we don't do it? I do that more often than I care to admit. But the beauty of this passage is Jesus in his, his very next breath shows us. He begins to talk about when he was healing the man, just a few chapters ago in chapter 5, when he, when he healed the man who was lame. Jesus says, I have not come just to convict the world of sin, just to point out the ways that you're wrong. I have come to show you grace. Which is why Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, when they were going to pour the water out. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. I am the living water. And in that ceremony of water, Jesus points and says, I am going to give you not just water that quenches your thirst, not just that, that cup of cold water after mowing the lawn, not just that sort of thirst, the thirst of your soul. I am going to give you living water, the Holy Spirit. This whole feast, the reading of the law, the pouring out of the water, all of this, Jesus says, is about me. It's about what I am at work. It's not just about, about giving you water that you can drink, but it's about slaking the thirst of a deserted world. Jesus is not just going to fill them with water. But what does he say? That when we receive the Holy Spirit, that the living waters flow out from us. Jesus doesn't just make us Christians. He makes us agents of this world's transformation. He does that by us living and knowing and judging the world around us by this, that this world is not ultimately our home, that we are sojourners, that we are pilgrims, that we live in tents, 
waiting for the city that is to come. Living like that is a ball for this world. It's a, it's a way that this world is transformed. Because all of us, Christian and not, get caught up in the moment. We get stuck in the moment and we can't get out of it. What Jesus says is that there is something more that's coming. That this is not everything. That this feast that the Jews have been celebrating for thousands of years was all leading up to him. And even now, we wait as things continue to lead up to him. Well, Jesus saying that this feast of the Jews... Uh, was all about him, was going to cause reactions. When Jesus says, hey, this thousand-year-old feast, this seven-day party, this reason why we all live in tents one week out of the year, that, that's all about me. That's all about why my father has sent me. Has, has a number of responses. First, the, the people, some of them believe, some of them don't. Some of them say, this must be the Christ. Some of them say, he's at least a prophet, but what do the religious leaders do? The religious leaders are quick to try to quelch this. And as much as Jesus was sort of cheerfully joking, the Pharisees are sharp and cutting with their words. When, when people return, the people that they had sent to arrest him and they hadn't arrested them, they say, what, are you deceived too? And the people say, well, everybody is sort of believing and the people are talking about him. And they, they say, what, oh, Oh, now you're deceived. Has, has anyone important believed in Jesus? Has any of, have any of us Pharisees believed in Jesus? And one of the Pharisees who had begun to believe in Jesus, Nicodemus, stands up and he says, well, wait a minute, this is not the way that our law says that we, should, we can't just arrest this guy. And what do they say? Go back and study your Bible, Nicodemus. That's literally what they tell him. Go study your Bible, Nicodemus, because if you believed the right things like we believe, you would know that no prophet comes from Galilee, which is wrong, which is wrong. Jonah was from Galilee. Isaiah was from Galilee. There, there are several Old Testament prophets, famous Old Testament prophets from the region of Galilee. So they didn't know their Bible. And yet what did they tell Nicodemus? Go study your Bible. You must have flunked out of some courses. What were they doing? What were the Pharisees doing in that moment? What they were doing, they, they were doing something good. They were reading the Bible. They were reading their scriptures. But what they missed was they missed Jesus. They missed what the scriptures, what the festivals, what the ceremonies of the Old Testament were all about. They missed Jesus. Here's the question. Why? How could the Pharisees have such an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament and miss Jesus? It was because instead of submitting to the Bible, they used it to justify their actions and maintain their power. That's how they missed Jesus. Instead of submitting to the Bible, letting the Bible exercise authority over them, they exercised authority over the Bible. And they used it to maintain their power to keep themselves in comfort, to keep things going the way that they'd always been going. Just like us. Just like us. 
How often do we cherry pick verses to justify the things that we want to do? How often do we ignore sections of the Bible in order to maintain our position? How often do we only listen to the people who affirm the positions that we believe in the Bible so that we keep going the way that we're going? Church, we are guilty of this as well. The church throughout time has been guilty of this, of, of using the Bible to prop up what I already believe. I want to believe this, so let me just find three verses that back it up. So how do, we, how do we not do that? How do we keep ourselves from exercising authority of the Bible? Well, we do it first by listening to the Bible. We don't just stay in the Gospels or the New Testament or the letters of Paul. We don't ignore the New Testament and just focus on the Old Testament. We have to take the Bible as a whole. As the whole Bible is God's word breathed out and enlivened by the Holy Spirit to but not only that, we have to listen to different voices, voices that critique what we have always believed. I have failed at this. Uh, when, when I was in seminary, I read a lot of white European dudes' opinions on the Bible. And I have had to, so I was confronted about this. And I've had to change the way that I prepare a sermon. I have had to intentionally say, okay, where am I looking at a minority's perspective on this passage? What women am I reading interpreting this scripture? How am I going outside of my box of white European dudes who probably agree with me on everything? How am I listening to other voices to help me understand and wrap my mind around the Bible? Does that mean I agree with everything that they say? No, but I'm listening and being willing to be critiqued in my view of the Bible. We have to have that sort of humility. We have to have the sort of humility that says, maybe I'm wrong. And that humility doesn't come from us. That humility that's willing to be challenged by the Bible, that's willing to be changed by the Bible, that humility can only come from the Holy Spirit. Can only come when the Holy Spirit is working in my life, when those streams of living water. Because, because our, natural, our natural disposition, when we are challenged, and especially when we're challenged by the Bible, is to either fight against it, to ignore it, or to run away and find a church that believes all the same stuff that we believe. But church, what we need, what we need this morning, what the people needed at the Feast of Tabernacle 2,000 some odd years ago was we need the Holy Spirit to change us. We need Jesus to give his Holy Spirit to us, to make us alive. His Spirit is the living water that quenches not only our thirst, but also it's what gives us the balm to love and serve others. And yes, we have failed with uh, to my non-Christian friends who are listening along, the church has done a bad job at this. In some ways, we invented cancel culture. We have been the quickest 
to bury someone for their moral failings. And that is us not living what the Bible tells us we ought to live. That is us saying we believe in the Bible and not living it out, just like the people that Jesus critiqued in this passage. But church, let's let's see that change happen in our lives. Let's, Let's be the people who follow Jesus in the way of humility. Let's live with the humility that comes from knowing that this world is not our ultimate home. That these homes, these families, these jobs that we've been given, these situations that we live in are ultimately not our own, but they are gifts of God. Let us love as Christ has loved us. As Jesus has served, let us serve others. There's a a beautiful quote about the early church from the Roman emperor Julian. As plague and famine had broken out in the Roman Empire in the time of Julian, they had a problem that the Roman Empire couldn't care for the sick Roman citizens. The Roman Empire had a problem that there were so many people that were sick and impoverished that they couldn't handle it. But this is what what Julian said. It is a scandal among us 